<laughs> Let's do it. Hello and welcome to the Sen Mums Career Club, a podcast exploring the highs and lows of trying to climb the career ladder whilst raising children with complex or additional needs. My name is Lisa Miller. I'm a journalist with three children. My eldest daughter Beatrix has a condition called Kabuki syndrome. She's under various medical and therapeutic specialists and attends a Sen school. Every week, I'm joined by a different guest to discuss work and ambition through the lens of special needs parenting. Today, I'd like to introduce Kate Blackmore, an ENT, that's ear, nose and throat surgeon. Kate has two daughters and her youngest, Emma, eight, also has Kabuki syndrome. Welcome, Kate. Thanks for joining me today. This is a bit of a strange and special one for me because we are friends in the real world. You know, um, we both have Kabuki children, uh, children with Kabuki syndrome. And um, so just for full disclosure, I've been boring Kate with chat about how I wanted to launch this podcast for at least 18 months now. So it is kind of magical and surreal to actually sit down to record this. So Thank you very much. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. And yes, you have been talking about this for a long time. And I think it's <laughs> amazing what you're doing. And I'm delighted uh, that you started it and uh, and that you've asked me to, to come and chat to you as well. Amazing. I'm I'm so looking forward to hearing more about your work life because, it's, you know, it's so often the case. I think every mum will relate to this. The conversation just tends to revolve around the kids. So tell me to begin with, why did you choose medicine and how did you get into your current role? It stemmed back very early really. I was about eight years old and I used to watch Casualty on a Saturday night with my nana when I went to stay uh, and when my parents went out and and that's where my interest in in medicine came from. Nothing uh, more exciting than that really. As soon as you start telling people that you want to be a doctor well they're always going to be encouraging of that and I guess that is really where it stemmed from. I enjoyed kind of sciences and things at school um, and and it gave me a a focus and something to work on. Um, I'm not naturally bright, but I worked really hard because I knew where I wanted to be and where I wanted to get to. And and so, yeah, that's how I got into medicine. The funny thing was when I actually did an A&E job, I absolutely hated it, which was a bit of a disappointment because <laughs> that was the whole reason why I'd become a doctor in the first place. So, yes, it was from, from a young age. Um, and as for ENT... I feel really fortunate, actually, that I kind of uh, found the specialty because it's a really small specialty, um, surgical specialty, and it's really underrepresented at medical school. So I'd had no exposure of it at all. And I've been doing a surgical rotation for a couple of years as a junior doctor, and I was getting towards the end of it and, and getting a little bit panicky that I hadn't really found anything that... I really wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. And then and I did ENT for my last job and, and that was it. Within a few days, I knew that that was the career for me. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's gone onwards from there. Ear, nose and throat obviously covers all of ear, nose and throat, but people do tend to subspecialize within it. And, and I decided to specialize in, in pediatrics towards the end of my training. And, and I can say that it's actually the, the best son of subspecialty within ENT, just really rewarding. Um, and I feel really fortunate uh, to have my job because I absolutely love it and, and there's no denying it there are a lot of problems and pressures in the NHS at the moment and that does make life hard but I can honestly say that 
I love going to work every day. I really enjoy my job. I enjoy the job. I enjoy the patients. I enjoy the people that I work with. And and that feels of a very privileged position to, to be in. Yeah, absolutely. I can't think of, of many other people who would say that about work. I know, you know, and I feel so grateful for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So tell me, you're you found your specialism. You absolutely love it. Um, you decide to start a family. Your eldest daughter comes along. Presuming you go back to work after maternity leave and you're kind of on that pathway. So many women are. And then um, you fall pregnant with Emma and then the game changes, right? What kind of impact did, did Emma's arrival have um, and her diagnosis as well, you know, have on your job? Yeah, massive, um, as I'm sure it is for all those other people that are in the, in the same situation. And, and yeah, and I think probably the first thing was the impact that it had on me. You know, I, I was completely floored by her arrival. I, I just wasn't expecting it. I think I was almost in more of a full sense of security that everything was going to be okay because I'd had an abnormal 12-week scan. And, and I'd opted to have all the investigations. And I'd also entered a trial as well, which even looked at her, her genetic makeup. And so I felt, you know, even more reassured that everything was going to be okay. And then when she arrived and I was kind of told in the uh, delivery suite that she got a cleft palate, that, that was just the start of what felt like a living nightmare, really, for the first year. In and out of hospitals, operations, you know, uncertainties about the future, I just couldn't see how I was ever going to be able to get back to work. And I just, I couldn't imagine leaving her with anybody else. She, she had so many needs. Um, she was uh, tube fed at the time. Um, she had the most awful reflux. And I, I just couldn't see how, how there was a way through. My husband works in London, so he was away for most of the week. We didn't have family close by that would be able to help. But I also knew that I had to get back to work because my job is is part of me it's it's kind of part of my makeup um and I'd worked so hard to get there that it, it was so important to me and I do remember my dad saying when Emma was probably about sort of eight months old saying you know we will find a way to get you back to work you know don't worry we'll get through this and, and we will get you back to work and and I did have quite a prolonged maternity leave I was off for about 15 months in the end uh, by the time that I felt that I could leave Emma with somebody else and we, we got a nanny um, and, and it was she was absolutely amazing um, it was difficult to find somebody you know uh, having a child with special educational needs but but all the all the medical problems as well that go along with it and having to learn how to do the tube feeds and um and look after the gastrostomy um and the constant screaming it, it's not an easy job to take on but but Lucy was like our nanny McPhee really she came and, and saved the day and I knew that I couldn't go back to work full-time unfortunately my workplace was very understanding of that and, and allowed me to go back part-time and, and and so between our amazing nanny that we had and uh and going back to part-time I did make it back you know and and have managed to achieve you know so much out of my job since I've got back despite being being part-time that's a really important point, isn't it? Um, and I think the conversations around full-time work, part-time work are really interesting at the moment. It's obviously high up on the government agenda, how, you know, how women are balancing childcare and career. It's fantastic to hear that you don't feel that your career has been hampered by that because I think, you know, there are lots of women who go part-time having had children, you know, not necessarily even children with additional needs, um, 
who really find that that does have a big negative impact on their career? Yeah, I mean, I can't say it hasn't affected it totally. You know, it it, it definitely has, but I've never given up on seeking out the things that I wanted to do. Um, and I think I've been fortunate that I've been surrounded by very supportive people within within my own trust, but also within the, the sort of community of, of pediatric ENT as well. So yeah, it is. There's definitely inequalities still out there, you know, particularly in medicine. And I would say in surgery as well, surgery has always been a male dominated um, specialty, but it is improving. And, you know, and there are more women in medicine now, without doubt, you can see the figures rising. So there has to be changes. Um, you know, women have children, you know, neurotypically normal or not. And, and the workplace has to learn to accommodate to that. Absolutely. Your job is, you know, I can't even begin to imagine that it's a high pressure, high stakes environment. And outside of work, you're kind of in a, also in a high pressure sort of high stakes environment um, with Emma's needs. You know, we know that there is so much extra work that goes along with raising um, children with uh, additional needs you know the admin the reading and learning the logistics the emotional load um, that comes with that how do you manage those things I think um, well I know I am very organized um, and I always have been and I think that is an absolute blessing um, and has kept me on some kind of even keel most of the time although I, I kind of guess I might capsize every now and again but but that being organized I think has made a, a, you know a, a big impact on how I do manage things day to day. I do the consultant road trip at work. So, you know, I'm, I'm ready for 2024 and most of 2024 is, is already planned. Um, but I think that's what you need. Well, that's what I certainly need that keeps my stress levels low because I know I am um, organized and I'm, I'm ready for things. But I think you're right, you know, the, the admin, it is, it's endless, isn't it? The EHCPs and the, the DLAs and, and every time Emma goes on some kind of trip of some sort, the form that you have to fill in takes me forever because she's got so many medical <laughs> conditions that you've got yes. to write in it. Um, and, and so it's trying to find the, the time to do all of those other things, um, as well as the work that I can't get done when in my work hours. And so being part-time has, has really helped that. But also I think having the children into a routine um, so that I can do things in an evening, you know, from Emma being born and, and being in the hospital for sort of six months of it and her screaming constantly and vomiting all the time, there was still bath time at half past six and there was still bedtime at half past seven and she might not have gone to bed and she'd have been up 10 minutes later screaming, but I still had that routine. And I think that's really helped with the girls because they're used to that routine. Um, you know, we don't have them in our bed at three o'clock in the morning, keeping me awake so that, you know, now that Emma does sleep because she didn't sleep at all for the first year, it does mean that I can get a good night's sleep. I can get up and, and feel energized in the morning, but it also means that when they go to bed, I have the rest of the evening then to be able to try and, uh, you know, do the admin and the life jobs and things like that. So I think that's, that's been really helpful. I think one of the other things that I've particularly noticed, particularly as Emma's getting older now, is that Whereas you could leave other, like I can leave Annabelle to kind of play on her own. You can never leave Emma to 
to play anywhere. You've always got to be alert to what she might be doing because um, she doesn't have any sense of danger. I was uh, just thinking about it the other day. I'd left her downstairs in the playroom for sort of 15 minutes and came downstairs to find her stirring a pan on the hob that I'd you know, purposely put at the back, but she'd gone and got a chair um, and, and got a wooden spoon. And and so I think it's that you are when they're awake, you are constantly having to supervise and observe. Um, and, and that's quite tiring as well. So getting her to bed at a decent time has, has, has really helped uh, has really helped give me an evening. But I am worrying now that she's getting older. Harper Seven is not cutting the mustard anymore. She said to uh, my husband, Steve, the other day that she is sure that when um, Annabelle was her age, she was definitely going to bed later than Harper Seven. Um, <laughs> so, so that's going to have to be a negotiation in the, in the future. You know, and as they stay up later, then, then your, your evenings disappear from you as well, don't they? Otherwise, I'd have to go to bed later. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm impressed that that's what you use that time for because come the end of the day, like I am done, you know, <laughs> between work. Um, bath time is, you know, it's hard work. I've, obviously, I've got the three um, and two younger ones as well. Um, and unhelpfully at the minute, my husband, Jamie, uh, he snapped his Achilles tendon. So he's in a moon boot and on crutches. And bath time is is one of those times that I'm really noticing that he's just not there to help. It comes to the end of the day. It comes to bath time. We're inevitably running late. So I, I have absolute admiration of your rigid schedule because we try to stick to a routine and we get waylaid. And by the time it comes to bath time, you know, I'm low on patience. I'm tired. The kids are tired. And, you know, you just see that that routine stretching out ahead of the wash the dry, you know, the dressing, um, the teeth, etc. And I think something that people maybe don't realize that aren't in this world is, you know, there's so much that I still have to do for B. You know, she's not a normal six-year-old. And cognitive disability means that she cannot be independent in a way that her sister, who is four, can be independent, Felicity. So I have to help her, you know, I have to even help her climb the stairs because she's still quite wobbly. You know, I have to help her get undressed, um, etc. Now, Flissy can do those things for herself, but she doesn't want to do those things for herself because she sees me helping B. So it's all mummy, 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 mummy. You know, she wants me. And then the baby's just a baby. So he needs me to do it. That's three small people being very needy towards me at a moment at the end of the day when I am struggling and at the minute I am really feeling Jamie's absence in those moments because we sort of share that and we he does still to an extent but he can't so much as you know carry the baby upstairs while I'm helping B I have to kind of do two trips up and down the stairs um, and the time just goes and when it comes to the evening and everybody's quiet and in bed by the time we've tidied up because the place inevitably looks like an absolute wreck at the end of the day done all the dishes from um, from dinner even maybe even we have, maybe we haven't even eaten by this point you know cooked something you know I kind of we kind of skid onto the sofa at 10 10 30 at night and barely manage an episode of a box set before I fall asleep so for you to be able to carve out that time in the evening and use it productively um like I am in all uh, but you have to also <laughs> remember that I do have a nanny so on the days that I am working uh when my nanny is here when I get home at six or seven o'clock at night um they have been fed, you know, um, and, and that, that does make my life so much easier. Mm. Um, I feel really lucky that uh, that we have that support. Yeah, 
we we do eat probably a bit too much pizza than we should. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting what you say about having to do so many things for B still, and it, and it's the same mm. with Emma. You know, it's the cleaning of the teeth. You know, I heard you saying on the previous podcast about cutlery. You know, it's about mm. teaching Emma to chop food up, and and when you're tired, it's so easy to just do it for them. Mm. But then I so consciously aware that if I keep doing it for her, she's never going to learn, you know, and those socks and tights felt like they were a mountain we were never going to reach the top of. But with daily perseverance and screaming and upset from all of us, (laughs) the socks (laughs) do eventually now go on, you know, and, and the teeth are getting a bit more brushed and, you know, (laughs) and the broccoli can just about be chopped. So, you know, it is, but it is something that you, that other people just take for granted that their children will learn how to do these things. Um, But, you know, even at the age that Emma's at and, you know, in several years time, I I should imagine I will still be helping her her chop her food. Um, and, And I think it's easier for me in the situation that I'm in that Annabelle is older than Emma. I think it must be really hard for you when Fliss is overtaking B in some ways. Um, and, and, and hard for Fliss to understand that, but also B as well. Whereas it's easier for me because Annabelle is older. So, you know, Annabelle goes to bed later because she's older and Annabelle has sleepovers with friends because she's older. Um, and, and Emma doesn't question it more than that. Not yet. I know she will. But uh, yeah, I, I do think it's slightly easy in that respect. It is very difficult that, that Felicity is, you know, ahead of B in so many things. And, you know developmentally socially as well like you say you know Annabelle can go and have her friends you know Fliss is such a little social butterfly at four years old and an episode recently where I took them to soft play and soft play is so difficult isn't it soft play is so difficult when you have a child with a disability Um, I mean I think most parents don't like soft play anyway (laughs) but it's extra horrible if you're taking a child with a disability and you know the kids just wanted to go they were begging so we, we took them along to the soft play and it was really busy it was really busy and I always try not to show you know that I'm perturbed or nervous of course not I'm like an adult and I'm in control of the situation and I just said oh it's really busy today isn't it and Felicity she's just I don't know whether she caught it in my voice or she just knows me that well she got hold of my hand and said don't worry mummy I'll look after B I just felt so much for her because she takes on a lot you know as the sister of a child who needs so much attention and who doesn't react to her playing who doesn't react to her questions who doesn't you know um, behave in the way that she might be led to expect for her to behave and it's very much one rule for one and one for another and it's very difficult for her to understand that at the minute you know B gets praised for the smallest thing for not making a mess at dinner time whereas Flissy doesn't get praised for that but she's constantly like look mummy look mummy I didn't make a mess and if it's a day when B has made a mess at dinner time, you know, we have to say, well, it doesn't matter if you make a mess, darling, you know, it's fine. But if she did purposefully make a mess, there would be trouble. You know, it's just very difficult at this age. You know, that will get easier as she gets older and and understands more, but it's a lot for her at four. I think it's probably a lot for them at all ages. I mean, Annabelle's 10 now and, and she struggles with it. You know, she is amazing with Emma. I don't know how much she really understands about Emma's difficulties, but she does find it difficult when, you know, exactly like you say, Emma gets praised for the tiniest things and and she doesn't or she doesn't get into trouble for doing certain things, whereas Annabelle does. And and she does really struggle with that. I'm not sure how good I am at that. You know, I think I could be better at it, but it is. Yeah, it is. it's, It's a really 
challenging uh, situation it is and like you say we we put it back it's another thing to feel guilty about isn't it we bring it back on ourselves it's just another thing to feel guilty about Kate you've mentioned about some of the issues that kabuki syndrome has on Emma and I think it's important to kind of point out here I'm assuming a lot of our listeners will be in this Zen world with us so they will understand this but maybe uh, maybe some people don't so just because our children both have kabuki syndrome it doesn't present exactly the same in both of them it is a spectrum so um, for example I take heart of some of the things that Emma is doing she's a couple of years older than B she's doing really well at school I know she's I've, I've had a lovely handwritten thank you letter from her before <laughs> which filled my heart with so much joy um, you know I know she's doing really well with her reading and writing she can tell the time etc you know B can't do those things yet but she's only six so you know if she never learns them it doesn't matter but to know it's possible is nice for me in this moment of her development but B's Kabuki syndrome does not present in the same way as Emma's. So what were some of the key challenges for you? Um, you know, you've mentioned, for example, the feeding, the screaming, um, etc. What are some of the other key challenges that, that Emma's condition has had that have impacted on you and your ability to work? Um, I, th- I think really most of Emma's real difficulties and the, the kind of medical side of things were really all while I was on maternity leave. So actually, by the time we got through the first 18 months, things were pretty pretty stable. Um, she obviously still has ongoing health things, but we've not had anything cute um, that's, you know, sort of caused me to have to take time off work at short notice. Everything has been planned. Um, she's had cleft palate surgery three times now, I think. I'm kind of losing count a little bit on it. But, but that's that's been planned. Uh, I think some of the challenges have been, you know, knowing the operations that she's going through, you know, having that medical background. I know the risks associated with them. I know that they are low, but it's very different when it's your own child. Um, and, you know, those low risks don't seem quite as low anymore. Um, so, I, you know, I guess one of the things which is, you know, quite a straightforward procedure, commonest operation in children, it, you know, it's having grommets inserted for, for gluia. And it became apparent, you know, and it, and it is common in Kabuki uh, that she had gluia and had a hearing loss with it. And, and the natural thing is that she would have grommets inserted and 95% of children in that situation, the parents would opt for grommets. But I was a bit like, oh, yeah, but there's this 3% risk of a permanent hole in her eardrum afterwards. And, you know, that for Emma, then that's going to be another operation and another general anaesthetic. And so something that an operation that I would do every day became something that actually I didn't want Emma to have. I, you know, I, I kind of we went down the hearing aid route to start with to try and avoid that. You know, even though the risks were small, I think just having that little bit of extra knowledge and knowing the worst case scenarios, um, it, it makes it hard not to worry. I think sometimes I, I found that I just need to put my trust into the other medical professionals and try sometimes not to be a doctor and just to be a mum and so often I will go to Steve for that because I think as a doctor you either tend to be very blasé about something or a complete hypochondriac <laughs> and, and I can't be objective in it mm. um, and so you know I will go to Steve and say well what do you think do you think she should have another operation on a cleft palate or or do you think we should just wait and see um, so I kind of go to him to be my objective side and uh you know, and, and see it from probably from more Emma's side of things than, than from a, a medicalization of it. It's um, I'm so fascinated that you that you sit on both sides of that fence, um, you know, being a medical professional and a mother of a child who who needs so much 
uh, treatment. Are there, are there any ways that that makes it easier for you? I guess I guess I've got a lot of knowledge about the things that have, you know that have happened to Emma, and and if I don't know about something, it's easier for me to find out the answers because I know how to search for them, and and I know other people that that might be able to help me. If not, so I, I think in that respect, those kind of things are easier for me. You understand? Yeah, I guess it's easier for you to kind of slip into that academic brain of of medicine. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so one of the things was that Emma's uh, very short um, and is off the bottom of the chart for her height. And again, that's associated with Kabuki syndrome. But there is some medical evidence that growth hormone might be of, of benefit for children with growth uh, with Kabuki. And I know that a lot of children with Kabuki do get growth hormone. But I was able to look up the papers on it, you know, read them, try and make that balanced decision on, on whether the benefits would outweigh the risks for Emma. Um, so, so those kind of things, I think are easier for me rather than uh, just kind of relying on on uh, on other people's or other clinicians views um, you know but at the end of the day they are the experts in their fields so I feel very fortunate that Emma does have a great team of doctors and therapists that um, that work with her just uh, yeah been fantastic. Um, I remember reading an academic paper the only academic medical paper I've read uh, one of B's big issues is hip dysplasia and um, she first had surgery at nine months and her doctor, we were living in London at the time, he'd started seeing her before she got her genetic diagnosis. And when we got the genetic diagnosis, he was almost kind of quite excited because he knew Kabuki syndrome and he'd written a paper on hip dysplasia in Kabuki syndrome. And I don't know why. Well, I do know why I was trying to, you know, be a diligent mum and learn all I could. And I was like, oh, I would love to read it. Uh, and he sent it to me and oh my goodness, I really wish I hadn't read that paper. It was very, it was a very difficult read. And it really made me realise that there is a difference between being interested in something as a medical profession and being interested in something because it affects my child. Um, so I, that was my first and last medical paper I've ever read. Let's take a short break. Before we go into part two of the show, I'd like to give a shout out to our sister podcast, Baby on the Brain. Join Stylist Magazine's Felicity Thistlethwaite as she takes a mainstream look at the big parenting issues, from finding your identity after children to combating sleep deprivation. It's an informative listen packed with expert views, lively debate and laugh out loud moments. Discover Baby on the Brain from Stylist Magazine, wherever you get your podcasts. Have there been any times that you can remember it all just feeling too much? And what happened? Yeah, I think I, I kind of mentioned earlier that the, the first year of Emma's life was, was really the hardest, you know, from being in that delivery room where one of the uh, neonatal practitioners came over and told me she's got a cleft palate, you know, in my heart dropped because um, immediately I started to think of all the associations with cleft palates that I knew of it wasn't just a cleft palate to me like it, you know Steve just heard the word cleft palate well that's kind of fixable but to me it was all the syndromes that I know are associated with it all the other conditions that are associated with it and and it was just a constant drip feed of, of bad news and, and new problems um, over sort of weeks and months and with the uncertainties that that kind of came with that and, and not knowing you know what what the future was going to hold and then came the reflux which oh my goodness that, that was really 
tough the reflux um never underestimate reflux um you know it was associated with life-threatening episodes we were in the pediatric intensive care unit we had weeks and months um in a hospital sort of 50 miles from home so with steve working in london and annabelle was sort of uh well she was 18 months when emma was born so that was it, it felt like a living nightmare and i just really didn't know when it was when it was going to end um and i'm not sure how we got through that i think it was a bit touch and go at times and yeah i do look back on that time and and, and do wonder how on earth we did get through it particularly with the with the lack of sleep uh you know everything's a bit easier isn't it when you've had a good night's sleep but we didn't really sleep for over a year there were Emma just screamed constantly in pain and vomited and then she had a fundoplication so she couldn't vomit anymore so now she just retched all the time and that was actually probably worse than than the vomiting was so you know surviving on sort of 15 minute slots of sleep for so long was incredibly difficult and and you know it, it wasn't any better in hospital either I didn't feel I could leave her because the nurses were so busy that I knew that if I went to I'd spent any time off the ward, she would just be left screaming in, in the cot, and I, I couldn't leave like that. So I, there were some days where I couldn't actually get any food because I couldn't physically get to the food. And, and it just reminded me actually when you were saying about the orthopedic surgeon um, having written a paper on it. That I, I remember the, the doctors would come round on the ward round every morning, you know, and they'd bring their students and their trainees, you know, and they didn't know what was wrong with Emma, and you know, they say, "Oh, could it be this syndrome or could it be that syndrome?" And, and it was so incredibly unhelpful and stressing to me that you know they would come in and start banding around all these symptoms syndromes because as soon as they'd left I would obviously be googling the ones that I hadn't heard of to see if that that did fit with Emma so yeah I think I think that time was was just so difficult um and we've been so fortunate that we haven't you know had any time like that since where I know there's so many other families out there that it doesn't it doesn't get better you know they are on this onward conveyor belt of you know lack of sleep hospital admissions operations uh my, you know my heart goes out to them all I'm just so in awe of how they managed to do that I know things haven't thankfully been been as bad as that again but how do you stay sane what helps you well I think lots of things really I think exercise I think that really helps me um I think it's really good for your mental health exercising I like running um I like cycling and if I can't do them I get a bit frustrated so I know Jamie's torn his Achilles I recently fractured my third metatarsal so I feel his pain I've been in a boot for (laughs) four weeks recently (laughs) as well so that was quite difficult um but I think the exercise and the health thing is also more for Emma too because I feel she is so vulnerable. She needs me for as long as I can be alive for. Uh, you know, I, I don't want Annabelle to have to take that burden when when she's older. I shouldn't say like a burden, but I don't want Annabelle to have to feel responsible for looking after Emma. So I feel it's my duty to stay as fit and healthy for as long as I can so I can be here for Emma. And, you know, I know there's things in life that you can't account for and things that happen, but but I feel that my part in it is that I have to do all I can to to stay healthy for her. Um, but at, you know, at the same time, I, I enjoy I enjoy exercising. And I think the other thing is is just having having fun. You know, seeing friends, um, spending time with them. Um, I think it's just really important to be grateful for everything that we've got. You know, and and just enjoy life and 
and yeah and, and have fun I think that is really important and I'm lucky that I have supportive family a really supportive husband I've got a you know, great nanny um, and so I've I've got that opportunity to be able to sometimes go out and do things and not be a mom you know and, and not be a doctor um, and spend time you know uh, with friends doing fun things doing challenges you know the coast to coast ride and things like that so uh, yeah, I think that's probably what keeps me sane. Exercise and friends. Oh, it's. I feel very lucky to have met you. And I guess we're coming to this quite late in the episode. <laughs> Maybe it would have been helpful a little bit earlier. But, um, you know, just to, to briefly explain how we met, because we, we met through Kabuki syndrome. And we got B's diagnosis. My mum at the time, um, she's retired now, but she was working in a doctor's surgery um, support staff. And uh, in the tea room, you know, she she talked about her her granddaughter. B was her first granddaughter, very very loved, and um, you know, she's the kind of of nana who I'm sure was boring everybody with pictures of her every day and the videos and all of that stuff. When we got the diagnosis, uh, my mom was talking about it at work in the tea room, and um, one of the doctors in the practice said, "My friend's child has that same syndrome," and um, Kate, that was you, and so. Between um, your doctor friend and my mum, we exchanged numbers. And I remember, I think you texted me and you sent me a picture of Emma. And I just remember feeling like, oh, wow, life goes on. You know, these kids grow and people have a nice family life. You know, at at the time, we'd, we'd really recently got the diagnosis and it was really like, you just kind of can't see past that. It's like a wall, you know, you don't know what it looks like. And I, I remember seeing this lovely picture of Emma. I think she was in her pajamas in your kitchen and she just looked so happy and so cozy. She was so much bigger than Bibi. was such a little, she was only two and she was tiny, you know, such a little baby at the time. And I remember being like, wow, she is going to grow up to be like a child and go to school. And, you know, yes, that might not look how I thought it might have looked, but she is going to do those things and we're going to be a family. And I really took that just from your first message. And uh, from there, I met you at Kabuki UK does an annual um, gathering. Um, And you were so kind and you reached out to me and said, you know, it's very difficult to 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 go in this was our first experience of going to it's you know a lovely big public space where they have the event and it was our first event as a family with a disabled child with other families with disabled children and it's really indescribable how difficult it is to to do something like that unless you've done it you know we were we were there among so many families just having a lovely day out it was gloriously sunny but we were with the group of people who were there with their disabled children and it really felt like sort of stepping over a line for us into a new future that we really hadn't envisaged and you were so kind Kate to kind of um, almost literally handhold me through that experience Um, and I'll always be really grateful for that and it helps now that cosmically we've ended up living fairly close together and um, it's been brilliant to um, hopefully be one of the friends that you talk about you can have some fun with Um, always so happy to get an invitation to a dinner party at your house because Steve is an amazing cook and um, it's always really really fun Um, and then I threw a spanner in the works and had another baby so I have no life anymore but um, (laughs) hopefully we'll get back to those days again soon Um, but as if all of that weren't enough on your plate you are also now a trustee of 
Kabuki UK, aren't you? The charity that's specific to to the condition. How did you get involved in that? Emma was about nine months old when we got the diagnosis, a lot earlier than, than B. Um, and, and like you say, it was, it was a very mixed feeling. It was kind of the, the relief that we knew what it was so we could be more knowledgeable about it and, and maybe have you know some certainty about the future. But there was also the fact that you couldn't shy away from it anymore. And, and it took me some time to process it. And initially, I, I didn't really want to go near it. I didn't want to didn't want to look into it anymore but eventually I kind of plucked up the courage and, and went on the Kabuki UK website and, and there was so much information on there and and so many heartwarming stories from families you know it, it, it is very emotional and and the charity's been going for about 12 years now and was set up by a group of mums whose kids have got Kabuki and, and it's just grown so much over the years and and just like you you know we went to our first Kabuki family day when Emma was about 14 months old and and walking into that marquee, oh my goodness, you know, it it was so emotional. You know, you seeing adults with kabuki, you know, who are working in the public sector to very disabled children. Um, and, and I just walked into there and burst into tears. And, and it, I think it's because I just, at that time, we didn't know where, where Emma was going to be on that spectrum. And, and you're hoping she's going to be one of those adults that's achieving everything, but you, you just don't know. Um and so I guess a bit like I tried to be there for you, um, Beth, one of our trustees, her mom saw me and just gave me the biggest hug and, and was just so kind to me. And, and sadly, she's no longer with us now, but I wanted to be able to do that for other people. Um, so I was absolutely delighted when Sally asked me if I'd be involved in the charity and I've been involved for a few years now. And, and it, it really is going strength to strength. Um, Steve did a big cycle ride a few years ago. He cycled Land's End to John O'Groats and raised sort of £16,000 for it. And, and that money's gone to fund a piece of research work um, with Sid Banker, who's a geneticist in Manchester, who um, has got an interest in Kabuki. And we're just about to put on our second um, information day for families next year because there's so much more knowledge and, and research out there about Kabuki um, and we're working closely with the Kabuki Syndrome Foundation so there's clinical trials that are coming out it's an amazing charity and I just it's so nice to be able to support families either at the beginning of their journey or or along the way you know at the, at the family day we had this year we had 35 families there some of them come every year and it's so lovely to see them each year and see how their children are progressing and lovely to see new families as well um you know and and I'm always very aware of the new families that are coming in and and, and look out for them because like you say, until you've been through that, you don't quite know how they feel. But once you have, you never forget that feeling of walking into that tent for the first time. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a great charity. And, and another thing I feel guilty that I don't spend enough time um, doing enough for another thing that, you know, I wish I had more time to, to, to invest into. It's fantastic. No, uh, your work is fantastic and it's very much appreciated, I know, by so many people. Has raising Emma changed the way that you feel about work or your ambitions? Yeah, I, I don't think it'd be possible not to have changed me as a person, as a doctor. Um, I think, you know, doing paediatric ENT, I see children with complex needs every day. Uh, and I'd like to think that I was always empathetic and understanding of what the family was going through. But but there's nothing like understanding what they're going through 
until you've been through it yourself. But I never want to say that, you know, I I understand what they're going through because it is very different for every family. And I, you know, I always remember being in hospital uh, with doctors saying, well, you know, our baby was born prematurely at this age and look, they're doing really well now. And it's like, you don't understand. It's different. You know, it is different for every family. But I think some of the things that I've I've learned is it's changed how I work with families in a way. Um, I try not to, I try to, I've always tried to listen, um, but I, you know, children with complex needs, their parents do know them so well, you know, that they're, they're not just a textbook. And, and I think listening to the parents is really important. You know, I've been really mindful about not bringing them back to hospital appointments unless they really need to come back, you know, and, and letting them dictate follow-up, you know, using telephone consultations. Gosh, the only good thing we've got out of COVID is the telephone consultation, then, then I'll take it. <laughs> um, because parents don't have to negotiate the travel. They don't have to ne- take the car park. They don't have to take a day off work or lose a day's respite, you know. And, and sometimes I don't think as doctors we appreciate that. People are just like, oh, we'll just stick another six-month appointment in. But when you're under as many specialties as our children are, it, it becomes a full-time job getting to these hospital appointments. So, you know, and, and I often joke that, you know, I work part-time, but I'm also MSPA part-time as well because, you know, uh, nearly every week I'm I'm taking her to something or, you know, or, or, or on a telephone consultation about something with her. You know, it, it has changed how I've how I work. Um, I also think I have been able to give a bit better informed advice about, you know, blended diets and oral aversion and being able to do Makaton with the children. So so I've learned some new skills in that too. As for my ambition, would I be in a different place in my career if it wasn't for Emma? Possibly, um, but I have to say I wouldn't. I wouldn't change it for the world. My job's rewarding and challenging, and I can still pursue opportunities outside of work, um, sort of within my specialty, because of a supportive family um, and a supportive uh, work environment. But I'm still able to get to all of Emma's hospital appointments. I might not be able to get to every sports day, but um, but I can get to the hospital appointments and and, and the important things. So. I don't think it's changed, affected my ambition. It might have changed what my ambitions are, Mm. but I feel very fortunate that we have Emma in our life. She is the most delightful little girl, although I am slightly biased. Um, (laughs) She is full of fun and so happy. And yeah, I love love every moment of, of being with her, but also being able to keep up with my career and go to work for, for my respite, I guess, as well. Yes, yes. Um, that's the balance I feel as well. It's kind of amazing to hear you say that, um, given what, what your job is compared to <laughs> mine. <laughs> um, finally, Kate, I'm going to ask everybody to, uh, for the final question to finish the sentence. The biggest lesson raising a Sen child has taught me is... Don't ruin today worrying about tomorrow. That is something I learned very early on with Emma and something I say a lot um, I spent a lot of time worrying about what might happen in the future and it's just not worth it because you just don't know it's going to happen, you know. Um, so live in the moment, enjoy those times that you have now. Um, the future will be what it's going to be. There's no point ruining today. I love that. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Special thank you to my guest, Kate Blackmore. You are now officially part of the Send Mums Career Club. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> if you want to be part of the club too, join us on social media and share your story. You can find us at Send Mums Career 
on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn or use the hashtag SendMumsCareer. We're new here in the podcast space and I'd love to hear what you thought about this episode. Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review and, of course, come back next time.